go back home, and I couldn't find my car. No matter what I did, I couldn't get to the vehicle so I could go to my next destination. I just couldn't. And I remember in the dream being so desperate that I just couldn't figure this out. I'm thinking, but I can figure this out. I'm the one who parked there. How could I not figure this out? But no matter what I did, the obstacle was there. I just couldn't see. I couldn't remember where the car was. I had another dream maybe a month, a few months later. Um, basically the same thing. I am in my car. I go to the mall. I do what I need to do. Um, it's time to go back to the car. And when I look, uh, the car was, there was the mall, a highway of like five lanes, and my car parked on the other side, thinking, how in the world am I going to cross these five lanes to get to my car? This is impossible. I cannot do it. Uh, I don't know how I, how I managed, but finally I get in the car, and by then I'm crying and panicky and frustrated and angry and all the things. And after that dream, that, that morning, I felt so heavy and so frustrated. Um, and I was tuning into some frustration with God and with myself and with circumstances. And I felt uh, the heaviness of obstacles that I was facing that I just didn't know how to address. And I felt that those obstacles were unmovable. They just wouldn't budge no matter what. They were just stuck in that position. And that day I said, okay, God, you and I, we're going to hash this out. And I sat down in my green chair and with my cocoa, <laughs> and I had some conversations with God about us, and I waited, and I listened. And he began to talk to me about, okay, like, what, what is this about? Of course, now that I'm sharing the dream, it seems obvious that it's what it's about, right? It's about obstacles that I'm facing that I just don't know how to address. I feel hopeless in them. These obstacles are never going to move. Um, but when I, went, when, I woke, when I would wake up, I didn't realize that it was really a, uh, an image of where my mind was most of the time. So God shows this to me, and, and he starts to speak to me about his ability to remove obstacles. And I wasn't very convinced. A few nights after that dream, the, the second dream, I have this dream, Okay. I am with my sister, who's also a pastor's wife, and we are, we have been given a mission. God has given us a mission. I think it's a time of war. It's like there's battle there. There's a lot at stake. And we have this mission given from God, uh, and we're working with a, with a network of different people. It's kind of like we're like the resistance, you know? And we have this mission. We need to get somewhere. But when we look at the map, and with intelligence that's coming to us, we know that all these different routes to get to, to the outposts that we need to go so we can break through, all of them are closed. And in my dream, I'm thinking, oh, here we go again. So we set out. My sister says, hey, I think we can do this. And we are in a Jeep. I've never been in a Jeep, but man, it felt really good. It felt very, you know, <laughs> very powerful. And we are in this mission. We get to the one outpost where there is a little bit of hope. 
that if we get there in time before they close it, we're going to get through. When we get there, just as soon as we get there, they have just closed it. It's like, oh, I have felt this hopelessness. Like, again, we cannot fulfill our mission that has been given to us. And then my sister says, hey, Sonia, how about if we just get out of the Jeep and ask if we can go through? Like, oh, okay, fat chance that's going to happen. This guy looks really official. They're not going to get us. They're not going to let us through. But we do. We get out of the car. We get out of the Jeep. And we ask them, hey, we have a mission. We really need to get through. Would you please remove the obstacle so that we can go? And he says, oh, of course. All I needed to do was ask. <laughs> and he takes the thing that was there, takes it away, and we go. We go through that, through that gate. And at the end of, of that road, there is a river. And this river, there is a steamboat uh, waiting for us. And the steamboat is full of people of God, all of them also in a mission. And there's this joy in the boat that we get on the boat, and there's like this... Uh, this joy in, in knowing that we had purpose, that we had been called, and that we were doing this thing together, whatever the thing was. And there's more to a dream, but I'm going to leave it there. Um, and I woke up, and it's like, oh, the dream changed. The obstacle was removed. I was able to go through. It's, this is possible. I was needing hope very desperately. I was uh, given in to hopeless despair, uh, which is one of those heavy feelings that visits me often or has visited me often. Uh, and God knew that I needed a different narrative. And I needed to hear a different story that it is possible for obstacles to be removed and that a lot of times all we need to do is really ask. And it was that simple. And I realized that in a lot of those areas, in a lot of areas of life, I had given up asking. I was so uh, bogged down with, with hopelessness that I didn't even ask anymore. But the solutions, they were there all along. God's hands were there all along. The possibility for the thing to be taken out of the way so that I could go through, so that I could get on the boat, so I could fulfill my mission... It was all there, set out for me in advance. Um, we are living in a time that, uh, for a lot of different reasons, hopelessness is uh, something that visits the world often, even the people of God often. And I think that um, this is something that is true of life, but I think that it has intensified during this time. So we're, we're going to look at the book of Ruth again today, which is one of my very favorite books in the Bible. It's such a beautiful, beautiful story of hope and redemption in which we see over and over and over the hand of God preparing the way. And we see the heart of, of God who desperately wants you to hope. God desperately wanted me to hope so that I could ask, so that then I could get in the boat, so that I can do what he has called me to do. That's the heart of God for his children. I'm going to read uh, quickly from, you don't need to go there, from Romans. This is Romans 15, 4. And it says this. 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So I hope that today, as we go through the book of Ruth once again, uh, that will be so for us, that we have encouragement through it, and we would have hope. Now, uh, as you might remember, the book of Ruth is taking place, the action of the, in the book of Ruth is taking place during the time of the judges, which was a time of great apostasy, uh, violent time. There was a lot of bloodshed. Uh, the people of God uh, were doing, as the, the book itself says, doing what was right in their own eyes. Um, it was a time of great darkness for the, for the people. But... This story takes place in that time of chaos. God is already, the people didn't know it, but God was already breaking through into just the drama of this family and, 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 and pointing, pointing his way to hope and to restoration and redemption, even in the midst of all that darkness and evil and all that. So let's, let's begin looking at, at all this goodness. I'm going to, we're not going to read the whole book because it will take a long time. But I will, what I'll do is I'll give you snippets and then I'll summarize and we'll do it that way as we look through it. But I, would, I invite you to, uh, if you have your Bible or your phone, to open it up and to follow along with me. All right. So as you know, during that time, uh, well, I'm I'm just going to read it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife named Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is a dire picture that is painted for us here. Um, This is truly a calamity. This woman uh, is not only left grieving a huge loss of these uh, beloved people, but also what it means for her going forward, uh, possibly being destitute for the rest of her life because she no longer has uh, an inheritance of her own. But then, I I invite you as as I go through the book to do this, to be looking at how hope is breaking through in this narrative. To be attentive of like, aha, look at what God did there. And then as you do that, also to be tuning in to how God is doing that in your life. Maybe this is where just a, a little kid, oh, I see what God was doing there. Okay? Even in the midst of pain and suffering. So this is uh, verse uh, 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, by providing food for them, 
Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Aha. So we begin to see the breaking through, right? The providence of the Lord. There was a famine. The famine has ended. And now God has made a way for Naomi and her daughters-in-law to go back home. All right. And then what happens? As you know, uh, they're walking along the way, and um, they're all the three of them together. At some point, mid midway, uh, Naomi turns around and says, uh, "No, you cannot come with me. You cannot come with me. This is this is not going to go well for you. Instead, why don't you just return to the house of your of your mother?" Uh, and she's painting the picture for them, which is actually very dire, as you know. And Orpa says, oh, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense, and kisses her goodbye, they hug, they cry, she goes on her way. But Naomi, right? But Naomi does something different. She says, uh-uh-uh, no, I'm, I'm not buying this. I'm going with you. So she says, and this is verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. All right. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the scripture. Such a, a declaration of passionate, steadfast love. And, you know, as I was studying, I, I didn't realize this, but what Ruth was committing to do, she was committed to never leaving Israel. She was never going back home. She had pledged herself, and she was never going back, ho- back home no matter what happened. Not only that, she, was, she would never leave Naomi's people, which meant for her that she would only marry somebody in the line of, of Naomi or, or her husband. She was closing herself up to other possibilities. She was all in, all in. This is ultimate devotion. And not only that, uh, but... Uh, she, sorry, she is, she is lending in that moment, uh, Naomi, some of the hope that she has. She is reminding Naomi of God. She is confessing right then and there, God, as, as her God, your God is going to be my God. And, and Naomi doesn't see it yet, right? But, um, but there it is. All right. So they went on, and they came to Bethlehem, which, by the way, means, uh, means house of bread, okay? So even that in the narrative is telling you something. They're going to a place where there is, there is plenty again. And she's... she's coming back to the town, and the neighbors are all excited. There's some action going on, right? And they say, oh, Naomi, can this be Naomi? 
And Naomi says this. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She told him, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me, brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Hmm. Now, I have read Naomi, I have heard Naomi getting a bad rap a whole lot for talking like that, for having bitterness in that moment. But you know, I really emphasize. If my husband, my sons, and everything that I own was taken from me, I would probably be Mara, I would probably be very bitter. I don't think I would be very pleasant. So I understand what, what, where Naomi is, is at. I have had less misfortune than that in my life, and I have been bitter. So, and we see here that Naomi's theology, at least part of it, is right. She is understanding God's sovereignty. She is, on, she is naming her reality, which is like, I have been very afflicted. Oh, yes, she had been very afflicted. That is true. But her scope of vision didn't allow her to see what she really did have already. She had Ruth, right? She had been given this gift. God gave her the gift of Ruth. And God gave her the gift of, of making way for her so go, to go back to where there was food. She just can't see it yet. You know, this reminded me uh, of recently, I don't know if you remember, there was this amazing double rainbow a few months ago. Some of you are not in, some of you saw it. And that day, that, when I was outside, I was kind of grumpy. I don't remember what happened, but I was grumpy. And Hannah, who often is paying attention uh, to the sky, had seen it. And she was, Mama, you need to come see this. This amazing thing outside. It's like, what is it? I don't want to go see anything amazing right now. It's like, I'm not going to tell you. You have to come see it. It's like, And then I opened the door. It's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And my heart was, my, my hope was lifted, my heart, and I was put in a whole different frame of mind because my daughter was paying attention, and she knew that something amazing was going on, and she pointed my eyes to it. And we sometimes need it, just that, when our scope of vision is limited. Okay, so... They are, they are returning to Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning, which is verse 22. Again, notice there in the narrative that glimmer of hope. The harvest is beginning, which is a time of plenty, a time of celebration, a time of, of reaping what you have sown very literally. And not only, this was not just any ordinary harvest, but this was the harvest after there has been famine. So, uh, we get this little note here in verse uh, 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Again, we see God preparing the way like, oh, there you go. There is actually somebody who can redeem the situation, right? 
and we already know about a kinsman redeemer, so we, we're, we're already uh, attent to, attentive to that. And uh, Ruth tells uh, Naomi, hey, I'm going to go to the field, and I am going to, basically she describes it, she's going to go gleaning. And Naomi says, yeah, my daughter, you go ahead, do that. And, haha, I, I love this one. Um, as it turned out, this is, uh, I, I actually can't see the verse number, but, you know. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Hmm, as it turned out, how many times in your life have you said, as it turned out, I was remembering my, my, um, the day that I came to Christ. And I, my, my, my then boyfriend had said, hey, I think you need to get out of here. I was very, 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 very depressed. And he said, let's, let's go see your sister in, in Boston. That would cheer you up. I said, okay. And as it turned out, that was the weekend that I received the Lord in my life, and everything changed. As it turned out, they were singing the songs that spoke directly to my heart in a way that they couldn't have known, but God knew. So God was, in the midst of what was then chaos in my life, breaking through, helping me to trust, helping me to hope. So as it turns out, she's in, in his field, and now we see uh, this beautiful uh, passage here where um, Boaz comes, and what does he do? Uh, he blesses the man. He blesses the people he works with. He says, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. They go back. And there we know that Boaz is not just wealthy, not just a man of standing, but Boaz is a man of God, right? And now we're like, okay, we like where this is going. We like where this is going. Um, and, you know, Boaz asks about Ruth. The men tell her how, how she's been working so, so hard. And uh, Boaz is paying attention. And um, he, I, I, I wonder if he had also, well, actually we know from the narrative that he had heard about her and what she was doing for her uh, mother-in-law. And he decides to bless her. He decides to go way beyond the requirements of the law uh, for gleaners. And he, they, he, tells, he tells her to stay in that field. You can stay here. You don't need to go looking for other fields. I talk to my men so that they will not harass you. Um, instru instructs his men to give her water from the well so that she doesn't even have to go draw her own water. And Ruth is so grateful and she's so humble she's so grateful she falls on her feet on her knees and he says what have I deserved uh, to have you treat me in this way and he says I've been told all about you about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings God 
uh, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Okay. And this is where we know, or this is where we're reminded, this is how, this is how Ruth was able to leave everything behind. This is how Ruth was able to kind of forget herself and, and go and walk with, with Naomi in her time of bitterness, leaving opportunities and possibilities uh, behind. And instead, she chooses the hard road, but what she knows is a better road of following Naomi. It's because she has come to take refuge under, under God's wings. And so it is for us. This is how we can take courage in hard situations. This is why we can do what we think we could never do, which is how we can endure situations that we think we can't endure. It's because we have come to take refuge under God's wings. Uh, after, uh, at mealtime, Boaz offers her food again way beyond the requisites of the law. He's just extending his special care and attention to her. Um, and there are other ways in which he, he does this. Again, God breaking through, preparing the way, giving her more and more abundance. Um, she goes back home to Naomi, and she's carrying an ephod. Like a big, it's a big basket. I looked this up. The, the amount of, of uh, grain that she had in that, that basket was the allotment for a month's work for a harvester, for a man. So she goes back to Naomi quite full. Now Naomi's paying attention, no? It's like, oh, okay. So this is amazing. How do you gather so much grain? She knew, she knew this was, you know, not what was usual. It's like, oh, I was in Boaz's field. Boaz. Okay. Well, and then she says about, about him, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Aha! We hear wedding bells, right? (laughs) We're hoping for that. And then in chapter 3, Naomi is saying, hmm, you know, Ruth, I think it's time that we find you a, you know, a husband, find you a home, somebody to take care of you, uh, where you will be provided for. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Yes, yes, Naomi, you already told me that. Okay, and then she concocts a plan. She's very astute, a little conniving even. She says, you know what, tonight, when he is winnowing barley, you go, you, uh, you get all prettied up, you get all like, you know, put your makeup on, put on your best clothes, put your perfume, super pretty, and go and take note of where he lies down after feasting. Again, it was a time of feasting. And they knew he was going to be sleeping with his grain to, to watch out for his grain, who was out. And uncover his feet, watch out where he goes, Go there when he's awake and when he's asleep, quietly uncover his feet and lay down at, the, at his feet. Like I'm thinking, well, what? What's going on here? Right? Um, and Ruth says, okay, I'm game. I'll do that. I'm going to do whatever you say I'm doing. This is just say I should do. 
So she goes and she does this. And of course, and at some point in the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up and is like, what? There's a woman here. What is going on? Uh, cause for concern, right? What will the neighbor say? And uh, Ruth says this, I am your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. This, my friends, is a great marriage proposal. And what she's saying there, <laughs> what she's saying there is, you know, when it says spread a corner of your garment, spread your wing over me, as you will. You have already confessed that I, I have come to take refuge under, under God's wings. Now, will you be my covering too? Will you also cover me with your wing? Like, who can resist that marriage proposal, right? He's like, oh. He's like, God bless you. You didn't go after the hotter men, after the younger men. You, you're going for me. Uh, this is like, like you're such, a, such an amazing woman. He has already seen Ruth, and he had been observing, and he knew, he knew her character, and he knew her courage. And again, all this time, God is preparing way. God is preparing way. The story has more and more hope built into it, right? And there is a little wrench in the plan, right? At that point, I said, uh-oh, what do you mean there's another guy? Because there was another guy. There was another kinsman redeemer that was closer to her. So he would be the one that should be her kinsman redeemer before him. So it says, okay, you know, yeah, this is true, but don't worry about it. I'm going to sort out this matter quickly. Uh, I'm going to go to it. Don't worry about it. If he says, yes, that he'll marry you, then you go with him. If not, I assure you that I will. I will be your, your redeemer. So um, before she goes away, oh, by the way, everything was all, there was no, no uh, business going on, no hanky-panky going on. Everything was very clean and pure. And in the morning, he says, hey, so that the neighbors don't think anything of us. doesn't really say that, but that's, you know. You get up, you get up really early and you go away, okay? Nobody needs to know that you were here. Don't tell anyone. But before she goes away, he says, hey, bring me your shawl. And he pours a massive amount of grain in it, and he tells, he tells her, um, actually, he gives her instruction to go back to town. And then she, Naomi goes back to her, I mean, Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law, and Naomi must have been like, oh, my gosh, I wonder what's happening. <laughs> And she's probably thinking, she's probably like, like all the hours are going by. I, she probably didn't sleep that night. If I had been me, I don't think I would have slept at all. Um, she comes back, she's like, tell me, tell me, what happened, what happened? And she says, you know, I did everything you, you told me to do, and this is how it turned out. This is what he said. There's a wrench in the plan. He, there's another guy. There's another kinsman redeemer. But he's going to sort it out. And he says, she also says this. He gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So you remember, right? Naomi's declaration at the beginning of the book that she was empty. Well, Boaz has been paying attention. Boaz doesn't want her to go, to, to, for Ruth to go back empty-handed. So Naomi is getting fuller and fuller and fuller 
God is preparing the way. God is um, behind the scenes, orchestrating everything. And now, and now they wait. Now they have to be patient. Well, Boaz figures out the deal with the other man. We don't know his name. He's only called friend, right? Um, so he goes, he, he goes very early. He goes to the, to, the, to the town, gathers some elders. They need some witnesses. And um, he addresses the person and tells him, Hey, um, you, know about, you know about Naomi. You know about Ruth the Moabitess. And, sorry, let me just take this out. Uh, so there is this, um, I, I'm just going to read it. Okay. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Uh, I, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And he says, I will redeem it. Like, oh no. This is not, this is not what we were hoping for. <laughs> but then Boaz pulls out the next card and says, <clears throat> On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Ha! The kids my reader right didn't like that. Uh, he says, well, you redeem it yourself. He was afraid that you will endanger his state. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Ha! Yes! Right? Yes! <laughs> so, Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from the family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Obstacle removed, right? God had prepared the way, and here we are. I've been, I have somebody going like that. <laughs> Reminding me all the time. I'm going to need to speed up. Um, and, and then, of course, this means uh, that, the, that what they have, the, the emptiness that they have been experiencing now has been overturned. God has been preparing the way all along, and now they come to a place of fullness. Okay. And this is uh, in uh, verse uh, 13 in chapter 4. So Boaz Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. The Lord enabled. It was God who gave that baby. And she gave birth to a son. Hmm. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given you birth. So has given him birth. 
Here we see, right? The overturning of all this calamity, the emptiness now being turned into fullness. Um, but here's the thing. It doesn't, it, it's not about their story, right? But I'm going to uh, pause here for a moment. We have seen all along how God is preparing the way, right? And I've been uh, um, highlighting how God is doing that. But also, as God is doing that, we, we see people cooperating, partnering with God as he is preparing the way. We see people that are growing in hope, right? Or have been hopeful all along. And we are called to do exactly the same. When God, when the, when the clouds begin to part and we see a glimmer of hope, if we're paying attention, then we have, we have our part to play. We're not passive in the narrative. We are supposed to be active. And we do it this way. We walk in the way that he's paving for us. He's opening a way. Go ahead and walk in it. And that often requires boldness and courage. Um, and is the better way. So you're, you're feeling more hopeful. You're seeing the clouds parting. You see the way. Walk in it. Because he has prepared works, good works in advance for you. And you want to you wanna walk in them. You want to pay attention. Where are the clouds parting? Where is God leading? What might this mean? This is, uh, as we call it radical attention paying. And we do things that foster this kind of living by listening to, to the Holy Spirit uh, in attentive prayer by scouring the scriptures, we do this by being diligent. <clears throat> and then we need to walk in it. We, we need to obey. Excuse me. <clears throat> We're patient. <clears throat> excuse me. We're patient in expectation and expectant in, pra- in patience. Uh, say that three times fast. I'm going to read it again. We're patient in expectation and expectant in patience. So many times I have um, been patiently expecting and patiently expecting and patiently expecting. Um, but then at some point I, I become really impatient and frustrated and angry because I want the thing now. But no, I'm encouraged to remain patient in my expectation. And sometimes I am very expectant in my patience, but then I got worn out again, and then I become uh, impatient. I think I said that twice, but that's okay. Um, And we, and this is kind of obvious, but it hit me yesterday as I was talking to Stephen. It's like, we receive, we are to receive his fullness with joy. With joy. Isn't that obvious? But how many times have I not, have I missed that? Have I been given a great gift and my heart hasn't been moved enough because I haven't really weighted the significance of it and I have let, it slip, have let the, the joy slip from my hands all too quickly before I actually really tasted it, before I, then I could do something with my joy, before I could move, before my joy had a time to expand, Right? So how do we do this? How do we receive this fullness with joy? We celebrate. And the Jewish people were really good at this. It was worked into their, into their, into their system, into the religion. They were celebrating over and over the good things that God has done. Can't we do the same? 
Can you celebrate the small victories and the big victories? Can you call your friend and tell him this amazing thing happened? Can we go out to dinner to celebrate? And we practice gratitude. We do that in many ways. You can do it very simply by simply recounting some things that you're grateful for every day. Try to make them different every day so you're paying attention. But we also talk about doing joy stories. Um, if you don't know what that is, just ask us and we'll tell you. And we practice gratitude so that we can enjoy what we already have, right? That's what you're doing. You're paying attention with gratitude. So we go back to the text. And this is verse uh, 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Okay, so this story all along was not just the narrative of a single family. It was that, right? How God breaks through for you and for me in our small narratives, in our small story, in your family. How he is preparing the way for more fullness and for more goodness. But also, it was pointing the way to the bigger story. So the story of a nation in chaos in which God had already broken through in this way to bring a great king, Israel's first great king. And then what does that mean for us then? Where does that point for us? Well, my story, my narrative is part of a bigger narrative, right? In this time of, of Advent, we... we uh, we talk about being expectant, and we talk about longing and preparing the way. We have seen here that there is, like, in, in the, for Naomi, there was fullness beyond what she could see. She never saw that fullness. She never saw the great king of Israel, we imagine, unless she lived many, 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 many years. But it was coming. You don't even need to see the fullness of joy that comes after you. You don't need to. At least you won't see it this side of heaven, right? But we still hope for it. It still matters. The disobedience of Israel caused exile after, after you know, King David had brought the people of Israel to a place of rest. They had come fully into their land. They could now rest after many, many, many battles. And they're enjoying, their time, enjoying a time of plenty. But as it tended to happen, time and time again, they went after other gods. They disobeyed. This causes them to go into exile. But God is at work there. And we remember Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls. And we remember Ezra with the building of the temple. And we remember Daniel, who even in exile, even working for his oppressors, he, he was chosen as a trusted counselor 
and who, and who uh, testify witness to God in these nations, in these empires. And they hoped for a future king. They hoped for a restoration of Israel, right? So many, many years later, hundreds of years later, Jesus is born. Jesus is born. And some received it. Those who were paying attention received him, right? The, no, the ones that knew that they didn't have it, that they couldn't count on their money, that they couldn't, uh, maybe they didn't even have it, they couldn't count on their health, maybe they didn't have any health. They couldn't count on their righteousness. Many of them knew that they had no righteousness. And they received the Lord. But many also missed it. They didn't see it. And they missed their opportunity to receive. And, and he was received, but he was also rejected. So then that speaks to us who live after Jesus Christ was born. And we're thinking of how we have an opportunity daily to receive Jesus, to receive him anew, to receive his hope, his guidance, to sit with him, to be comforted, to be encouraged, to be corrected, to be given wisdom. Or we can choose also to not be paying attention, to outright reject him, or to just ignore him, pretend he's not there. Now, my, my dad... Uh, who many of you got to know before he passed away, before he returned to Puerto Rico, uh, lived to be 89. No? How long? Oh, that's true. That's true. I, I got, uh, my mind stopped at 89. <laughs> okay, so who uh, was 93 when he passed away to be with Jesus? Was telling me... Um, one night, he liked to, he would get really, really chatty very late at night. Um, but I'm grateful that I, that I would go into his room and listen, because this is one of the gems that he had for me one night. He said, you know, Sonia, one of the blessings of getting to be this old, having lived this, this long, and having walked, with, <laughs> having walked with Jesus all these years, is that I have gotten to see what God has done is that I have gotten to see how God always redeemed things, how he always prov provided. He never failed us. I'm very grateful for that. I'm very, very grateful for the perspective of my years. He was one that took on, the, took on Jesus time and time and time again. He kept on receiving Jesus. He would see the, the clouds parting, and there he would go, time and time and time again. I want to be like that. And then we're looking forward, right? This, this, is, this is not the end. The best is yet to come. Jesus Christ is actually coming again. So it may be that many of the things that you're longing for here on earth will be given to you here on earth. It may be that some will not. But regardless of that, Regardless of that, the best is yet to come. There will be a day when there will be no sorrow, no pain and suffering. You're just going to be full on with Jesus. You're going to have full fullness, if you will. You won't be able to get more full.
And we will experience a joy that we cannot even conceive of right now. Um, I, I remember um, a few years ago, about three years ago, God had actually delivered me from demonic oppression the night before and in a very dramatic way. <clears throat> and I, of course, didn't plan for it, didn't expect it. But there it was. And today after, the morning after, I woke up <clears throat> and I was so aware of God's love <laughs> that it felt almost uncomfortable. It was too big for my, for my brain to wrap itself around it. It was like, whoa, how is this even possible? How can love, God love me this way? This is not possible. It felt uncomfortable. But one day you're going to get it. Your brain is going to be able to enter fully into understanding the love of God, how you're loved. That is unfathomable joy. So I, I was listening to, to God um, yesterday about what he wanted for us today. Um, I had done my planning. I had done my research and all that. <clears throat> but I was, I was wanting to say, am I, am I still on the right track? And he said this, I want you to point to them how I want them to be hopeful. That I'm desperately wanting them to have hope again. <clears throat> the God of the universe is opening doors for us and he wants us to see them and to gain, regain our hope. Hope is what, hope is what uh, helps you to take the next right step, to do the next right thing, because you have understood that even if you cannot see it yet, right, you cannot see the thing, the thing is coming. The thing is coming. <clears throat> 